This podcast is brought to you by WeTransfer, the world's largest file transfer service. Since 2009, WeTransfer's free platform has been enabling creative thinkers around the world. Visit wetransfer.com today and see for yourself. Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie from Mag Culture. Welcome to What About, the podcast about how initial ideas develop into the fully formed stories we find in magazines. I like to imagine the writer at the editorial meeting leaning forward to convince his colleagues of an idea, saying, What About? Each episode of What About? looks at one story from one magazine. We open with me talking to the editor about the origins of the story, and then we get to hear it, read in full. We're focusing on the individual story, that essential building block of magazine making, and the editorial work that goes into creating and finessing it. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Christoph Amend, editor-in-chief of Zeit magazine. A supplement to the weekly German newspaper, Die Zeit, it has recently spread its reach via a biannual English-language compendium. Welcome, Christoph. Hi, Jeremy. Zeit magazine is a weekly supplement to the newspaper of the same name. Whenever we think about newspaper supplements, certainly in the UK, it brings to mind a certain kind of lifestyle mix of, of car reviews and celebrities, etc. Um, Zeit magazine stands apart from these in quite a number of significant ways. And perhaps starting off with its cover concept, perhaps, Christoph, you just talked to us about how your front covers work every week. What we do every week, we run a double cover, sort of a follow-up cover concept. So, we, you know, you always have the first cover page, as in every magazine in the world, and then you open up the magazine and then you get a second cover. So it's always sort of a surprise what's on the second cover. Sometimes it's a mystery, sometimes it's a funny punchline. Last week we ran a story, a cover story about the big question, you know, what would the world look like if only women could decide and men had nothing to say? And so we did some in-depth research about that. And so on the first cover, the headline said, well, if only women could decide, the world would be a, a better place. And on the second cover, uh, we explained, and we have proof. And of course, as well as the covers, there's a whole magazine behind it. Uh, but <laughs> but the covers, in, in your case, are very symbolic because that conceptual approach to the covers sort of plays through the whole magazine. It's very different to most weekly newspaper supplements. You've had a lot of big names from the creative world, illustrators, photographers contributing could you kind of sum up what the kind of editorial remit for the magazine is in the sense that it's, it seems to have a very broad reach? Yeah, we define Zeit magazine as the emotional side of Die Zeit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Die Zeit is a, is a, it's a very highbrow, serious weekly paper. I mean, they have great reportage, great storytelling and great visuals, but it's more sort of analytical in its DNA. So mm -hmm. we define the magazine as the emotional side. So everything that we do, every column, every story, every photo spread that we run always needs to be emotional. So that's how we kind of get to our stories. And because we define the DNA of the magazine as something very emotional, we can be very broad with our topics, on the other hand. Yes, yes. That's one of the things that, that's always fascinated me about it is how broad you can get from the regular columnists, people like Maurizio Catalan, Christoph Neiman, are regular contributors. And you seem to get access to some very interesting artists in that sense, that people that might not normally contribute to a weekly well, magazine. I think we define illustrators and photographers as authors. And we talk about stories with them the same way we talk about stories with our reporters and columnists. And we trust their visual language. And I think that's something that, you know, throughout the years, I think 
probably has been, you know, spreading around. So, so people like, you know, you've mentioned Maurizio and, and Christoph are, are sort of interested and keen to work with us, which is absolutely fantastic. You know, we're reaching out to around 2 million readers every week who read Die Zeit. So it's a great forum to support great artists. And it's also a forum that I've been aware of for quite some time through the front covers, but it was only in 2013 that I was actually able to read the magazine. <laughs> what, what about your uh, German, Jeremy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I know, it's, a whole, um, it, it's such a difficult language. I know. It is, it is. It's complicated, uh, even for it us. Is. It is. <laughs> In 2013, you launched the biannual international issue of Zeit magazine. Was there a demand for that beyond people like me? <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. I mean, already. You know, it happened because I had lunch with Brigitte Lacan, uh -huh. you know, the French-born photographer who's been living yeah. in New York for, I think, nearly 40 years now. And she was actually doing the weekly photo column at the time. And we met in Berlin during the Berlin Film Festival where she was with another film that she was taking care of. And we had lunch and she said to me, well, you know, I really like the design of your magazine, the way you present your stories, you know, the visual language. I wish I could read it. <laughs> and So, so, so it was, it's me and Bridget then? <laughs> yes, it is. It's, it's actually that very moment where I thought, you know, well, I'd, I'd been thinking about the fact that we're limited to German language, but more sort of unconsciously. And when actually someone like Brigitte said, well, you know, I, I would just, I would love to read it. I went straight back to the office after lunch and we had a meeting with our team and I said to them, well, why can't we figure out a way of publishing some stuff mm -hmm. that we do in English? So we had this idea of using the best stories that we thought could be of interest for readers abroad and to translate them into English and re-edit them and put them into a, a magazine on its own. And it was really, it was an experiment. I mean, we, the people on our publishing side said, well, it's, it's, it sounds a little bit crazy, but okay, you know, just give it a go. And so, yeah, in 2013, we launched the magazine and uh, yeah, we've been, we've been doing it ever since. And, and it's published entirely within the newspaper organization. It's not licensed to someone or anything. You entirely control and run it there from uh, yeah. Desite. Exactly. Uh -huh. yeah. Okay. It was... Really exciting for a lot of people over here who had, like myself, who had followed the magazine to sub finally get to read it and see it. And obviously we are seeing the kind of um, the greatest hits of the last six months or so. Is it, is it time limited like that? Is, does it actually reflect the last six months of the weekly magazine? Or, or Yeah, more or yeah. less. Yeah, more or less. I mean, we, we don't publish stories that are older, but by now we've been adding sort of exclusive stories and exclusive columns to the magazine. So... The, the political editor of Die Zeit, Bernd Ulrich, who's an expert and has been following Angela Merkel's path for, I think, more than 20 years, he writes an exclusive column that is only published in the international issue. You know, the, the, the subtitle of the magazine is called The Berlin State of Mind. So we decided that, uh, you know, his column would be called The Merkel State of Mind. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I've found since I've been able to read it is that the magazine is... It does have a unique outlook in terms of the breadth of what it can include, but it kind of takes things that maybe another magazine might just run as a small kind of quarter-page little featurette and gives them a whole page. And so that everything from illustration and photography pieces, things that might be run quite tightly on a smaller format in another magazine are given the space to breathe and they're just presented in a very straightforward, we think this is interesting, so we think you'll find it interesting kind of way. And that reminds me more than anything of the kind of indie mm -hmm. mags that I know you enjoy. 
And it seems to me that the Zeit magazine that I'm looking at on a biannual basis is essentially more like an indie magazine than a weekly newspaper supplement. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) (laughs) No, but actually you're right. I mean, the spirit of the international issue is clearly inspired by fantastic international indie magazine scene. And it's such a great honor. You know, whenever I see the international issue in sort of concept stores or, you know, newsstands, and it's kind of, you know, where the people put it to and related to, and they usually put it to on the same cupboards and shelves, like, you know, the great indie titles. And I think that's a very great honor for us because you've mentioned the way we present stories and we try to give you know each story enough space i think that's sort of a dramatic change in magazine culture itself i think uh, that we're facing you know 20 years ago sort of the idea of a magazine usually would be you can actually flip through the pages and you would get something new on every double second double page and you had these many pages with so many different elements on it and i think it was because magazines were there sort of to give you kind of sort of visual ideas and new stories and new smaller things. And and I think that's something that we get from social media today. You know, we don't need that anymore Mm -hmm. because every one of us is on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And so I think, you know, today, if you take a magazine in your hands, you're doing something unconsciously that many of us don't do anymore. You, You have to put away your mobile. Yeah, And so uh-huh. the idea of taking a magazine in your hand and reading a magazine, I think has dramatically changed because today, if you take a magazine and you open a magazine, you're willing to experience a different world and to take your time. And it's not like looking at the latest posts on your Instagram feed. So I think as magazine editors, we have to reflect that change. Which brings us to the particular issue of the magazine that we're going to look at, the uh, spring-summer 2017 issue of the international edition and the content in this issue ranges from a 42 page fashion special styled by jill sander the berlin guide that you mentioned there's a string of interviews with various musicians and also a a longer piece an interview with the singer-songwriter benjamin clementine and there's photo pieces there's a, a series from the toilet paper team of images that they've been doing for you and it's all very visual and exciting and then there is The piece we're going to focus on is actually about a vineyard, a very particular vineyard in the north of Germany. It's called A Sip of Truth. In a way, it couldn't be more different to the rest of the content of the magazine. Can you tell us a little bit about how that article came to feature? Well, Heike Faller, who's one of our best reporters, said at a lunch that we had, you know, I don't know anything about wine, so that's why I would like to write about it. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and I thought, well, that's interesting. Well, she said, oh, you know, it's always these kind of dinner conversations with friends when someone is showing off and telling you, oh, there's a bit of a strawberry taste at the end, you know, this kind of connoisseur <laughs> yeah. talks that we all know. And she said, well, I don't know anything about wine, but I would really like to get into it and understand what's so special about wine. And I thought, well, this is a great way of starting a story. And then she did some research and found out that there is this uh, guy, Egon Müller, Egon Müller the fourth, actually, uh-huh. because there have been actually four Egon Müllers before him, and they've all been working at the same vineyard in Saarland. In, it's actually in, in sort of in the south southwest of Germany. And so she asked him if she could actually cover a whole year, because obviously it takes a year to to grow mm-hmm. the new wine. And, and he finally agreed... So she traveled to this small village 
from Berlin where we, we have our offices throughout a year. And suddenly after, I don't know, six or seven months, she said, I'm finally trying to, I'm beginning to understand what it's about. And so after a year, she finished the story and then we, we published it. And now we've uh, in Germany and then we're publishing it now uh, in the international mm-hmm. issue. And on the face of it, a journalist visiting a vineyard, producing an in-depth reportage piece about, about that vineyard and how expensive the wine is and the care that goes into it and the competition with the local vineyards. It sounds very familiar territory and it might almost be a typical weekly newspaper magazine piece. But the way that uh, Haker's... Is it Haker or Haker? Yeah, Haker. Yeah. The way that Haker's gone about it brings a freshness to it, not only in terms of the detail she's applied and the research that's evident in the piece, but also it's a very long piece. Again, like as we've discussed before, you've given her space to really examine the issue. I think that the aim of that story is that to really write that one piece about wine. Mm-hmm. So you need to give her a space and time to really sort of write the definite story about wine. I mean, that's something, as we all know, you can actually never reach 100%. And that was that's always the idea. That's always the aim. And it was this funny conversation when she, during her first, one of her first visits, she talked with Egon Müller about the fact that she's not a connoisseur and she doesn't know anything about wine and he said well i'm not either so that's not a problem <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm only producing the wine and it's actually you know he's producing the most expensive white wine i think globally now um, yeah and she really got into the whole scenario of that family and the ancestors and you know the the rivals the local competition uh, between the different uh, vineyards and i think it's it's been one of my favorite pieces last year as you say, Egon Muller himself is quite down to earth and straightforward about what he's doing. He's a, a maker rather than a kind of a marketer. But we do meet lots of other characters along the way, who some of whom are sort of live up to some of the kind of less appealing caricatures of wine specialists. Yes, yeah, so one of my favourite scenes in the whole piece when Heike is in conversation with a Frenchman who's an expert in, in wine and who's been visiting Egon Muller's vineyard, and she asks him, you know, how can you actually define or how do you know that the wine is elegant or not and then it's a very french way of explaining a wine because he he asks her well you know when you feel something for a man can he describe it and she nods and says well yeah i actually can and then he says well then you do not love him (laughs) (laughs) it's the difference between french and germans On that note, let's dive into the piece and hear it being read. Christoph, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. A Sip of Truth On an unassuming hillside near Luxembourg, Egon Müller IV produces the most expensive white wine in the world. How does he do it? A year at the legendary vineyard Schatzhofberg by Heike Faller. It lies there like an animal, a large, peaceful animal that produces a juice that for some reason is considered incredibly special. The Schatzhofberg, one of the most valuable pieces of agricultural land in Germany. Its southward-facing slope is just moderately steep and only about 100 metres high and 800 metres wide. There's no picturesque river next to it, just a road. If you didn't know anything about this place, you would drive right by without noticing. It's May 2015. The hill is still brown this time of year. 
The estate sits at the bottom, a weather-beaten manor house with a slate roof and seven chimneys. A blue rowboat lies partially submerged in the carp pond. The door of the house is open. In the dark vestibule there's a grandfather clock that's stopped, a barometer, an oil painting showing Napoleonic soldiers having a drink, and a slim man in running shoes, who now bounds down the stairs muttering, Oh, how I hate it! The King of Riesling is in a bad mood. Egon Müller has to deal with all kinds of shit, is how the wine critic Stuart Piggott describes the 57-year-old wine grower. The man whose white wine is said to be on par with the revered Sauterne Chateau de Chem and the great wines of Burgundy's fabled Domaine de la Romane Conti. In 2010, a bottle of Egon Müller 1999 Trockenbeeren from the Schatzhofberg sold at a wine auction for €5,300, not including sales tax. These are times when winemakers are treated like artists, and wine has become the repository of all that is vanishing from the world, a clear sense of place, groundedness, while everything else becomes globalised. Egon Müller IV, scion of a family that numbers its sons as if they were kings, is considered one of the very top artists, a legend in the wine world, if virtually unknown to the rest of us. Müller prefers to let his wine speak for itself, and the critics respond by wrapping it in gushing adjectives. They write of its slate-like minerality and of its vibrating acidity. So delicate, fine, yellow and white fruit, writes one. Lychee is the first note to come to mind. White peach, a hint of white pepper. What is it about wine that fascinates people so much? Why wine instead of beer or whiskey or apple cider? Is it wine's ability to age? Like a person who becomes more interesting, more balanced, rounder with time, or bitter and undrinkable? Is it the way that a bottle of wine connects us to a particular place, to a particular time? Hardly any other fruit reacts with such sensitivity to weather as the grape. Hardly any foodstuff can be kept for so long. Wine offers the last sensual access to a year that's already gone, to its sunny and rainy days, to its storms, even to the societal conditions that prevailed. Whether there were enough workers available, what kind of methods were considered permissible in the cellar? There's an anecdote about what occurred when Egon Müller's father, Egon III, opened his last two bottles of Schatzhofberger 1945. It was in Paris at a small celebration marking the 50th anniversary of the end of the war. The vintage of 45 could have been truly exceptional. The summer had been warm and dry, but the Schatzhofberg was covered in weeds. There was a downed American thunderbolt lying on one of the plots, and hardly any workers on hand to help with the harvest. All of this must have somehow flowed into the taste of the wine the guests drank that day. There was a sense that they had a drop of the world in their glasses, perhaps even a drop of truth. Müller leads the way into the library, to its folios and its sofa upholstered in red velvet. A cast-iron crane hangs from the ceiling, hovering over everything as do quite a few questions. What is it about this wine that makes people prize it so highly? What stuff is it made of? How does Müller manage to transform grapes into something that's worth at least half its weight in gold? Müller talks about the hundred-year-old vines on the hill, 
of the way the grapes mature slowly in the Saar River Valley, a growing region with relatively cool temperatures. Of the hand-picked berries from which he makes wine in the old way, wine with a trace of sweetness. Of his clients, young Riesling freaks, old English ladies, bankers and oligarchs, people who pay not just because of the wine's taste, but also because of its rarity and its special and long history. In 1797, an ancestor of Müller's purchased the estate when Napoleon was in the process of secularising the landholdings in the area. His family has been cultivating the Schatzhofberg ever since. When you ask Müller what makes his family so successful, he modestly directs your attention back to the hill. I am the sixth generation that has been here. Each of us has stood at the pinnacle of the wine markets of our days, without exception. You'd have to be pretty conceited to say that one family can maintain the very best talent in uninterrupted succession, so you pretty much have to say it's the vineyard. Lunchtime. Müller's wife, Valeska, brings us salmon appetizers. An athletic and lithe woman of 41, she's in jeans and sneakers. Wine? Müller asks. I shake my head. I'm not a wine connoisseur and don't want to make up stories about some flavour or other, I tell him. Don't worry, says Müller. He's not much of a wine connoisseur either. I laugh, but he's serious. His job, he says, is simply to supervise the balancing of acidity and sweetness. I am, above all, a farmer, he says. Later we walk through the vines which are showing delicate green leaves. Müller says he's relaxed this time of year. The grapevines don't yet bear the fruit that he will later worry so much about. The year is still young, and one cannot yet predict whether it's going to be a good one or not. We want to accompany him this year as he goes through the ups and downs of the seasons and find out in the process how he coaxes this special wine from the vineyard. The Schatzhofberg has 17 plots, cultivated by eight different wine growers. Müller has the largest share. Those who tend the vineyards next to him are Anna-Gret Regartner, the only woman in the group. Max von Kuhnau, who is 37 and does not use any industrial pesticides, and Roman Nivodnichensky, 48, an heir to the Bitburger beer empire, who purchased land here in 2000. These are the main protagonists on the Schatzhofberg, along with four other estates to whom destiny has granted a piece of this Garden of Eden. They will produce wine over the course of the year, some of which will cost 10 euros a bottle, and others, thousands. So if it is the hill itself that makes this wine so special, how come the wines are valued so differently? Driving west along the Route 138 that skirts the Schatzhofberg, you come to the small village of Viltingen. Here, directly next to the church, is where Nivodnichensky, a great-grandson of the founder of the Bitburger Brewery, has renovated an abbey. Van Volksum, the name of his estate, is engraved on a brass plate next to the door. Nivodnichensky is a very tall man, with full lips, blue eyes, sinewy forearms, and long blonde hair that he ties back in a ponytail. He's the pop star among the Schatzhofberg's wine growers, and wants to be for wine what his ancestors were for beer, one of the leading companies in Germany. When I ask him what makes Egon Müller's wine different from the others, he immediately takes an historical perspective. He brings out hundred-year-old wine menus, 
from the Ritz in Paris and from New York's Ritz-Carlton, where the wines of the Saar were at the very top, before they began their long descent. World War II, the Holocaust. The expulsion and murder of Jewish wine merchants who had exported wine around the world. Then came 1968, when everything German was dismissed as bad, as parochial, tinged with Nazism. And the image of German wine just plummeted. Finally, a new German wine law was passed in 1971, which expanded territories and quality levels so drastically that even sweetened blends could be marketed as great wines, which sent German viticulture into a downward spiral. In the Saar, this crisis lasted until about the year 2000. As Nivodnichinsky puts it, only one stubborn old gentleman, Egon Müller III, dared, amid all this horror, to defy the large-scale sellout and uphold a level of quality. At some point, his estate stood entirely alone with this approach. And what we're doing today, what I'm currently busting my ass doing, is getting rid of this ridiculous image of German wine. His own Schatzhofberg wines sell for 26 to 38 euros a bottle. They differ in taste from those of Müller. They're drier, much as they would have been around 1900, Nivodnichensky says, in the golden age of Saar wines. Annegret Ray Gartner's wine is also quite dry. She's a delicate woman of about 60 who took over the Reichsgraf von Kesselstadt estate in the 1980s from her father, who made sparkling wines. There could have been some great vintages had she made sweet wines of the sort that Müller produces, but the diethylene glycol wine scandal hit Austria and Germany in 1985. Tests had revealed that small amounts of a toxic substance resembling antifreeze had been added to Austrian wines as a sweetening agent. Since then, only estates with an impeccable reputation, such as Egon Müller's, have managed to sell sweet wines. Müller has to make his first major decision in May. He sees tractors in neighbouring plots climbing the hill, trailing a fine white cloud of fungicide behind them. Last fall, spots had appeared on the leaves of the vines, black rot, a fungus that climate change has brought even to the cool Saar in the past few years. Now Müller wrestles with himself. He's not an organic winemaker. At the same time, he wants to spray as little as possible. Each treatment does not just destroy the fungus, it also robs the grapes of days to ripen. And in Müller's case, more than for his neighbours, the outcome depends on this. His grapes need more sunshine so they can grow sweet. It's like an athletic challenge, he says. How long can I hold my breath? Every day that I do nothing, the pressure builds. On the plot next door, which belongs to young Max von Kuhnau, the workers are now bringing out the baking powder, copper and sulphur. Von Kuhnau doesn't use any synthetic fungicide and sells his wine under the label Fair and Green, an organic certification system. Since buying the estate in 2010, he has also launched kosher wines and a feng shui wine that's harvested in the moonlight. The idea is to tap new markets. And another thing. I studied wine marketing. The key is to be talked about. Back at the Müller Manor, red roses climb up to the gutters. Müller glances at them reflexively whenever he passes. Roses are very susceptible to powdery mildew, another type of fungus that can affect the vines. He's actually relieved when he spots a fine white layer of powder on the roses. 
Now, he has an unambiguous reason to start spraying. He uses flint, a broad-range fungicide produced by Bayer that kills both powdery mildew and black rot. Each morning at five o'clock, Müller laces up his old running shoes and makes his way through the vineyards while it's still cool. He's starting to see the first blossoms. From this point on, the grapes will need almost exactly 120 days to ripen, from tiny berries the size of the head of a pin into fruits filled with water, sugar and acid. 20 days longer, for example, than in Burgundy. From now on, they will absorb everything that the year delivers. Every sunny day will increase their sugar content. Every storm will bruise their skins. It's this long period of ripening that allows the grapes of the Saar to become so aromatic. But it simultaneously increases the risk that the autumn harvest will be ruined. A few days later, Müller stands in the historic Telegrafensaal in Berlin for the Gala of Great Wines. Expensive wines are not only made in the vineyard and the cellar. To keep demand high, wine growers must sell themselves as well. In the first five months of 2015 alone, Müller has been to Melbourne, New York, Toronto, Venice and London. Now he is in Berlin, and two wine bloggers with lip piercings are bearing down on his table. He is in a dove blue suit, standing behind his entry-level Qualitätswein, the quality wine priced at €28 Euros a bottle. There are also different sorts of Auslaser, which become progressively more concentrated and golden, up through his Spätlaser, which sells for about €125. Euros. Müller stands there smiling. As soon as somebody holds out a glass, he pours. No questions, no explanations, no small talk. He's not at ease in such situations. My wife tells me that whenever somebody approaches the stand, I turn away. A few tables down, towering above everything and surrounded by apostles, Roman Nivodnichensky is giving a sermon on the trend towards cool climate regions and of the comeback of the Saar wine. Soon afterward, back in Wiltingen, close to the Luxembourg border, one of the hottest summers this region has ever seen is getting underway. First the fields around the Schatzhofberg turn yellow, then brown. At the end of July, the weather centre announces a temperature 10 degrees Celsius higher than the long-term average. There hasn't been a drop of rain in eight weeks. The men and women who have to keep down the exuberant foliage on Müller's plots stretch their brakes out as long as possible. His old sheepdog won't leave the house. The pond has turned into a puddle. But on the Schatzhofberg, the leaves on the vines aren't even drooping in the midday heat. There are as many theories for this as there are wine growers. Perhaps it is the forest on the other side of the mountain that keeps the soil moist. Perhaps it is the cooling wind that continually whispers through the valley. Müller thinks it is the prevalence of highly weathered shale in the soil, which holds the water and gives the grapes a flavour that some critics like to call slaty minerality. As far as we know, Müller says, this is what makes a wine special, what it takes from the soil. Terroir, the land, its soil, climate and geology, is a concept that has dominated the German wine world for the past 20 years. Behind it is the belief that a good wine is developed less in the wine cellar than on the vine. Good wine is an authentic reflection of its place of origin, the land, the microclimate, 
whether the grapes grew on a steep slope or on a plain. The wine grower's role is thus to help the terroir express itself naturally, not pretty it up or gloss it over. So what is the true taste of the Schatzhofberg? Aloof, somehow unruly. You notice it when you're standing up there. Real weather happens up there, says the Nuremberg wine merchant Martin Kersler, 61, who runs the oldest wine dealership for natural wine. He knows the output of all the vineyards on the Schatzhofberg well, though at present he doesn't sell any of them. Kersler's product range is exclusively organic. I believe that the ground has to be alive and healthy before a site can truly start to express itself. Even the wines of fair and green winemaker Max von Kuhnau aren't in his catalogue anymore. To Kersler, the label is not reliable enough. All the same, he says, he likes Kuhnau's wines. You have the sense with him that you're truly tasting the Saar. He also feels he can taste the hill in Nivodnichensky's wines. It's a kind of earthbound, spicy, unfriendly green note that needs time to open up, rather like the site itself. And Müller? Müller is such a monument that he simply has to make Egon Müller wines. To me, they seem to be much more about the style and the way they're made than unmistakably marked by the vineyard. In August 2015, sad news reaches the winemakers on the Schatzhofberg. Annegret Ray Gartner, the only woman on the hill, has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. The Müllers are friends with Ray Gartner and her husband. In the next months, they will often invite her husband over for dinner when Ray Gartner is in the hospital. She hasn't been running her estate in a hierarchical way, which starts to bear fruit as her absences increase. She made sure the people at Reichsgraf von Kesselstadt worked together well. Everyone knew what they had to do, is how she described it later. I don't think I've ever seen such lovely vines, says Müller toward the end of August. At this point, he has time to ask himself some questions. The year was so dry that he thinks he might have managed without using fungicide earlier in the season. This year, he didn't use any herbicides, which for many winemakers also includes the controversial pesticide glyphosate. But he doesn't want to rule them out entirely. I don't say that I'll never do it because I need to be able to use them as a last resort if I have to. But in the last 30 years, I've only used them once, in 2007. Müller wants to be environmentally friendly and pass on the land in good condition. His son, Egon Müller V, turns 15 this summer. He has just discovered beekeeping. Please don't spray my bees, he tells his father. Around the farm, he wears a T-shirt emblazoned with the slogan Stirb die Beine, stirb der Mensch. If the bees die, mankind will die too. Would he try organic methods on mould like his neighbour Kunal? Müller is sceptical. Organic wine growers may use copper, but the metal doesn't break down in the soil. Baking powder has the effect of concentrating the sun's rays. Müller has the impression that his neighbour's grapes have minor burns. Kunal, for his part, believes that synthetic fungicides of the sort used by Müller have an inhibiting effect on aroma and minerality. Another thing, Kunau has applied copper and baking powder treatment eight times, while Müller has sprayed only three times. What is more damaging to the environment, Müller asks. I do try to learn and maybe also prove something to myself. Is the organic approach better 
or can you manage your business using conventional means in an environmentally friendly way? The consumer wants certainties. I'm not so sure that it's so easy to deliver them. Kersler, the wine dealer, believes that top winemakers of the future are going to set their businesses to organic standards. In America, especially among the top sommeliers there, wines hardly ever find their way to wine menus if they're not certified organic, or if winemakers don't have a credible explanation of what they're doing in their vineyards. At Ray Gartner's estate, three test plots are being farmed to organic standards. Roman Nivodnichensky is not using any artificial fertiliser either, and he strictly avoids using any additives in the cellar. But like Müller, he reserves the right to use synthetic sprays if he has to. I stay out of the discussion organic or not organic. For many, organic is a marketing tactic. Over a hundred years ago, the leading wine estates of the Mosul and its tributaries, the Saar and the Ruhr, joined together in a great ring to auction their wines. A Friday in September finds Max von Kuhnau sitting on the small stage of a hotel in Trier. There are 300 or so people gathered before him. Among them is the celebrity TV moderator Gunther Jauch, who just a few years ago bought back his grandmother's estate just a few kilometres from the Schatzhofberg. The picture window offers a view of the Mosul flowing lazily by, and of low clouds hanging above it. Botrytis weather, Müller says. There has been enough rain for the botrytis fungus to spread among the grapes, a precondition for what winemakers call noble rot, and Müller needs it for his Auslaser wines. In extreme cases, it can force us to harvest before the grapes are really ripe, Müller says. Fifteen estates are offering their wines today. Egon Müller is here with 756 bottles of his 2014 Auslaser and 18 bottles of his 2003 Trockenbeeren Auslaser. As for Max von Kuhnau, he wants to see how the market responds to his von Hervel Schatzhofberger kosher wine from 2014. Women in crisp white blouses move through the rows serving samples. Max von Kuhnau is still in front, becoming slightly flushed. He calls for a round of applause when the auction results are good, greets the wine growers he knows in the soft dialect of the region, and diffuses, in English, about the admirable qualities of German winemakers. Some 1,200 bottles of his kosher wine sell for 24 euros a bottle, 9 euros above the starting bid. The bottles of Müller's 2014 Auslaser are auctioned for prices ranging from 174 to 770 euros. The final lot consists of the precious 2003 Schatzhofberger Trockenbeerenauslaser, the sweetest and most concentrated of Müller's wines. The dealers bid in 500 euro increments, 3,000 euros, 5,000 euros, 10,000 euros. When the lot reaches 12,000 euros per bottle, Müller adds four more bottles to the lot. Max von Kuhnau calls into the microphone. Egon Müller has increased the number to 22 bottles so that we can remain in a realistic price range. When he finally brings down the hammer, the 22 bottles have sold for €12,000 each before taxes. The 2003 Schatzhofberger Trockenbeeren Auslaser is the most expensive wine in the world, not counting ancient historical rarities. That evening... Egon Müller invites some of his customers to the estate, 
A long table has been set up beneath the cast-iron crane in the library. Around it are gathered a delegation of wealthy nations and newly rich ones. The guests include four rather chubby gentlemen from China, a dealer from Moscow whose heavy-lidded indifferent gaze makes him resemble Vladimir Putin, a father and son team from Geneva, a Norwegian who studied business, and a Hungarian named Akos. He likes to start his sentences with the phrase, Let me tell you this, almost always followed with a superlative. He bought ten of the day's twenty-two Trockenbeeren Auslaser at the auction and checkmated nine other dealers to become England's general importer for Müller wine. Akos says, they wanted to murder me. The nicest of the guests seems to be Gerard, a picture-book Frenchman in his mid-sixties with a bald pate. He had been a manager but became a wine dealer when the owner of his favourite wine shop in Paris fell ill. Not all the clients of these dealers are going to drink the wine they purchase in the foreseeable future. Famous wines that store well have become part of the general boom in tangible assets. Their investments, like old-timer cars and works of art. But do the phenomenal prices paid for these wines bear any connection to reality, to the actual taste of the wine? But of course, says the Frenchman, once you know the Müllers and have seen their estate, you see the sheer poetry. Egon is elegant, his wine is elegant, and Valeska, she always has a smile on her lips. There is crab salad, followed by slow-braised beef. At some point, Müller disappears into the cellar and returns with a bottle of Burgundy, a 1995 Grand Deschaisot from the Domaine de la Romane Conti. A small cry issues from the Norwegian as he realises that we're about to taste one of the great years of one of the most celebrated estates in the world. I take a sip. It tastes like red wine, perhaps a little bitter. It might not be the appropriate moment, but I can't help thinking of all the blind tastings that I've read about, the ones that show over and over again how even experts have a hard time telling the difference between a cheap wine and an expensive one. Liquid sex, calls out Akos the Hungarian, who's seated next to Valeska Müller. She smiles forgivingly. She knows Akos and no longer takes his patter seriously. And as the Müllers see it, it's precisely this machismo that spurs his clients into paying ever higher prices. Drizzle is still falling in the courtyard when the company breaks up around 11pm. The Frenchman insists on driving me back to Trier. He may have had a few too many glasses of wine. No problem, he says. He knows a back route through the vineyards. Do you really think that the wines of the Schatzhofberg have a poetry that other wines don't? I ask as we creep at a snail's pace along roads wet with rain. There are rather very elegant wines, but they don't give you the same feelings inside. What exactly do you mean? I ask. Gerard gives me a sidelong glance. When you feel something for a man... Can you describe it? Well, actually, I can, I say. Then you do not love him, he says. I shut up. I suspect anything I could say now is going to make me look like a Philistine, in wine as in love. What an extraordinary mountain, he murmurs as if to himself, while steering his jeep through the vineyards. How does it make such a great wine? Two weeks later, on October the 5th, Müller is standing in his hiking boots on the muddy Schatzhofberg, 
surrounded by 30 men and women. Each is in a row of vines, moving through them with a bucket that has a small metal container attached to the rim. Some of the grapes are still green, some are tinged with violet, others are shriveled, almost like raisins. Skipping the green berries, the workers pluck the violet ones and put them in the bucket. They put the raisin-like grapes in the metal box. Müller moves among the rows, reaching into the boxes to pick out any grapes that aren't shriveled enough. Their water content is too high for the concentrated Trockenbeer and Auslaser. The sky is grey. There is audible thunder somewhere in the distance, though it's not clear whether caused by a storm or a passing jet fighter. Putin, calls out a woman, a harvester from Poland. During the lunch break, Müller checks the weather on the website vetter.de. Ten millimetres of rain are forecast for the next two days. Just enough water for the dried berries to absorb, making them mouldy. The harvest could go from precious to worthless overnight. Müller is not worried about the grapes that are still green. The moisture simply beads off their smooth skins. It stays dry for the rest of the day. A drizzle giving Müller cause for concern only sets in as he sits down to a light supper with Valeska and their daughter Isabel. Their 15-year-old son is out taking a hunting class. There's bread on the table, along with smoked salmon, salami, and wine from Nivodnichensky's estate, Van Volksum. Isabel, who is three years younger than her brother, declares that she has no interest in wine, but does like to write stories in the fantasy genre. Once their daughter is in bed, Müller says that he thinks her lack of interest in winemaking is almost a kind of anticipatory obedience. After all, the estate is destined to go to Egon Jr., who has been groomed for it from the start, by his very name, as Müller puts it. He himself was the eldest of three brothers and could never have pictured doing anything but tending the estate when his turn came. That's the situation here and it works. It's buried deep in the walls. I stay out of this, says his wife. Instead, she's helping Egon Jr. study for the exam that will give him his hunting licence and talking to him about how he can market his honey. It's already being stocked by the local Edeka supermarket, the most expensive brand on the rack, labelled Egon Müller. The next morning, the third day of the harvest, it's dry again. A yellowish light filters down through a blanket of clouds. They're still harvesting the dried berries, working today in the Garten Kniep, a tiny plot directly below the scrubby top of the hill. The juice, called the must, from the previous day, is still not sweet enough for the Trockenbeer and Auslaser. The grapes still need three or four more sunny days to develop the needed amount of sugar. Today is Tuesday. The weather should improve on Sunday. Until then, they'll have to live with the rain. After lunch, Müller stands in the yard and looks up at the sky. Weather report? asks his Polish foreman Andreas from the window of his delivery truck. Rain, says Müller. One hour, then showers. Shower! Andreas calls back to the poles sitting behind him in the delivery truck. As far as German goes, they know the most important vocabulary for the wine harvest. Rain showers, bucket, shears, boss. Around 3.30pm it starts to rain. Andreas takes an hour working his way up the muddy row, a steep 50 metre slope. Enough time to chat about the state of NATO, to mull over why Qatar won't accept any refugees, and finally 
about his time operating a bulldozer in Krakow in the 1980s. Up at the top, he tips the last few grapes into his bucket and says, Think positive and drink wine. Somewhere in the distance, Müller's voice calls out, Fire Arbent! Quitting time. A while later, he's sitting at the table in the large kitchen, across from the wood stove. We're right between a high-pressure front over Eastern Europe and a low one over France. We're not going to get off without some rain. Harvest or wait? There have been years when he waited and his grapes got just the sunshine they needed to reach perfection. There have been years he's waited and seen his harvest rot. He calls up a page on his iPad. Viltingen. Wednesday, 60% chance of rain. Thursday, 80%. Friday, 70%. Saturday, 20%. Starting Sunday, sun. Now everything hangs in the balance between a great vintage, with Auslaser wines and maybe even a Trockenbeer and Auslaser, and a rained-out crop. You have to decide, Muller says as he sits in the warm kitchen, and you inevitably make mistakes in the process. Later that same afternoon, on the eastern side of the hill, Max von Kuhnau sits at his computer in his office, which also serves as his sales room. Vetter.de is useless, he says. He prefers ProPlanter, the website of the beloved pesticide industry. I check it three times a day during harvest. It keeps me calm. ProPlanter reports a lower risk of precipitation for the rest of the week than Vetter.de. Kuno hasn't yet sent his pickers to the Schatzhofberg. His grapes have ripened more slowly and have not yet developed any botrytis. The next days of rain will not affect them. Wednesday. The pungent smoke of autumn fires hovers in the air. Egon Müller has decided to hedge his bets for the next few days. We'll keep harvesting and at the same time we'll try to wait with some of the grapes for things to improve. Now even the grapes with higher water content will be picked. The Auslaser wines will be produced from these. In a garage across from the Müller's mansion, the grapes are put through the stainless steel Europress. A brown juice trickles forth. The cellar master dips a metal rod into it to measure sugar content, a factor key to sweetness, aroma and alcohol level. The unit of measurement is the Erchsler. Erchsler level isn't everything, but nothing can be anything without it, says Stefan Fobian, 50. The level is at 108 degrees Erchsler, a good grade for Auslaser wines. With his northern German accent and his silver spectacles, Fobian looks more like a professor than a man who works closely with nature. Good cellar masters are sought after. In average outfits, because they can turn sour grapes into sellable supermarket wine, and on great estates, because even perfect grapes can be easily turned into bad wine. My father always said that it's impossible to make a 100% wine from 100% grapes, Müller says, but that it's easy to make a 70% wine out of 100% grapes. The cellar master at the Müller estate will never be a star. He has no opportunities to shine, though he has many for failure. Ever since Fobian coaxed a good wine out of the rainy summer of 2000, Müller has trusted him completely. Fobian recounts that in earlier years he would take measures, like neutralising acidity or filtering out mushroom aromas with the help of charcoal. Now, with each year, he finds himself submitting more and more faithfully to the doctrine of terroir. Because this is the only way to create an honest drink. 
He feels the grapes of 2015 are so good that his job will be easy this year. The Ursler levels remind Müller of 1990. In the evening, he brings out a logbook from his desk. Indeed, the 1990 sugar content and acidity levels match those of this harvest. The estate still has three weeks of harvest ahead of it, and the crummy weather has not yet cleared up. But Müller thinks the numbers give us grounds for the greatest hopes. Müller has his first taste of the vintage in January 2016. He's standing at a small round table in the reception room with his wife, the cellar master, and two colleagues. He was optimistic at the end of the harvest. Now he wants to know if everything went well in the cellar. The wines are still very young, but there are no off flavours, and Fobian announces that this is the first time that he has managed to avoid making any major interventions in the cellar. I'd say that I'm finally in the position to make a more natural wine than anything that has ever come before. A Trockenbeer and Auslaser, too, is available for tasting today. The Potritus grapes really did survive the rain and were able to enjoy a few more rays of sunshine. The estate could fill 150 bottles this year. Shortly afterward, in February, the winemakers of the district gather at the Ertegrafen estate, the vineyard owned by celebrity Gunther Jauch. There are 60 wines, 20 winemakers, and two spittoons in the middle. Egon Müller is there. So were Roman Nivodnichensky and Max von Kuhnau. Annegret Ray-Gartner is represented by her cellar master as she's recovering from her chemotherapy. Everybody agrees on one thing. There were no bad wines this year. This confirms that it really was a good year, Müller says. Even if there wasn't one particular moment when they all voted on the quality of the wine, it's an opinion-forming process, he says. In March 2016, he sends a first bottle of Cabinet to his London dealer, Akos the Hungarian. Akos writes in an email that he opened the wine and, after his first sip, thought that it still needed to mature. But the bottle was empty the next day. That's already quite a compliment, says Müller. That same month, Annegret Ray-Gartner travels to Mainz with her head of marketing to the VDP Weinbursa, the annual trade fair organised by the Association of German Predikat Wine Estates, to present her 2015 vintage. They were ecstatic, she says later of the reactions. It helps her to see that her team can make a good wine even without her. One has to learn to be able to let go, she says. It is, after all, quite possible that I will die. In June 2016, Akos and his most important clients fly in from London. They sit out on the terrace behind the Müller Manor. The group consists of Akos, today wearing a T-shirt that says, Fuck this shit! A Bulgarian banker from Merrill Lynch, whose business card simply bears the name Alexander. Four young sommeliers from important London restaurants and the Canadian buyer for the luxury department store chain Selfridges. The mood is subdued and nobody is talking very much. It's a few days after the Brexit vote and everyone is thinking about the United Kingdom leaving the European Union. Alexander thinks that Putin will invade the Baltic states unless Europe reorganises itself and gazes sorrowfully through his tinted KGB glasses. Akos is fiddling around on his cell phone. Stocks are down by 15%. You'd be well advised to put your money in Riesling. And then the first wines of 2015 are poured, Cabinet and Spätleser. 
A light yellow liquid flows into my glass. I take the stem between the tips of my fingers, as I've learned in the meantime to do, and lift it, burying my nose in the glass. Scent is important. The sense of smell is much more finely developed than that of taste, which can only distinguish five basic directions. I let the wine swirl one more time in my glass. I take my first sip of Schatzhofberger 2015. Lychee comes to mind, white peach, a hint of white pepper. No, seriously, it tastes fantastic. And I mean in a way that even beginners understand. Slightly sweet, but not sugary, because the sweetness is in fact balanced by something else, probably acidity. I'm no wine expert, but this wine works, I think to myself, the way chips work. A whole range of tastes, from sweet to salty, come into play, which makes you want more immediately. Egon Müller's Schatzhofberger must work the same way as great art, I think. Accessible and interesting to non-initiates, but simultaneously so subtle that connoisseurs respond to it as well. Like a painting by Gerhard Richter, or a Shakespeare play. The others sit over their glasses in silence, like doctors considering a difficult case. Energy says the Canadian, and focus, and an ability to mature. A great year, I ask him. He smiles. We'll only be able to tell in a few years, but the most important components are all there. In September 2016, Egon Müller sets a new record at the wine auction in Trier. His 2015 Schatzhofberger Alter Raben sells for €160 Euros a bottle. Such a high price for a normal Auslaser wine is more significant than the record price paid last year for a Trockenbeerenauslaser, thinks Max von Kuhnau. It is a sign that the whole area is back on top. Shortly afterward, Anna-Gret Gartner addresses her colleagues and friends in a letter. I now know that despite my optimism and fighting spirit, I've lost my fight. In the same letter, she names the three people from her team who will run the business. A few days later, she dies, at the age of 61. Her funeral takes place on October the 10th, 2016. A 2014 Schatzhofberger is served after the burial. All of her fellow winemakers are there, except for Roman Nivodnichensky, who had to be in Amsterdam that day. You really have to ask about the meaning of life, says Max von Kuhnau a few days after her death. It certainly isn't just about making money. He has just set up three internships in order to train refugees. Wine has a central place in many cultures. Wine brings people together. What remains? Egon Müller asks himself on the same day. He mentions the pioneering work that Ray Gartner did to rehabilitate the wines of the Saar. I think that what she achieved here is a monument. It's mid-October. A hard year is behind him. 2016 will always be a year I associate with Annegret's suffering and death, says Müller. And with continual rains and powdery mildew that he was unable to control, even with fungicides, it was a year that finally culminated in a merciful, golden autumn. The grapes ripened quite late. He put the harvest off until November. Then the hill slips into its winter sleep, while its gardeners fan out in all directions to tell the world about it of its old vines, of its harsh climate, of the difficult year, and of the wine that somehow contains it all.
At MagCulture, we love magazines. To hear more about what we do, visit our website, magculture.com. This podcast is presented by WeTransfer Studios and MagCulture. Visit wetransfer.com slash thisworks to see more of our creative collaborations.